Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Today is the day you have made. I will rejoice and be glad in Good morning. Today is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It is the 9th of September. All right, so the New Orleans Saints are going to play the Texans tonight. Football. I don't normally talk a whole lot about football. Well, you're ready for some football. I'm ready for some football. But the Saints quarterback, Drew Brees, is, finds himself uh, playing a little bit with a political football this week. Did the you Drew like that? haha. <laughs> I like to call it the, the Drew haha. There you go. So um, being an openly Christian person in the culture today can be challenging. We sometimes find ourselves saying things um, that we find others outraged about, and then we find their outrage a surprise, and we find that not everybody that we're standing with has articulated their positions in a way that uh, have been appreciated broadly. So there you go. Um, So Drew Brees has really been under attack since the release of a very short video encouraging young people to share their faith by bringing their Bibles to school. So Bring Your Bible to School Day is October the 3rd, 2019. Let me just go ahead and say, um, just go ahead and take your Bible to school today. Don't wait till October the 3rd. Uh, and, and you know, the, the Bring Your Bible to School opportunity is really just to have something that you can just it's a physical, I don't want to use it, I don't want to say that the Bible is a prop because that is not the right language here, but it does give us an opportunity to have a visual aid, maybe is the way of describing it. And so if you're not a person who carries your Bible physically around with you, then bring your Bible to school day is just an opportunity for sort of everybody to be challenged to do that and have an opportunity to do so. And so the event is a is a celebration of encouragement of personal freedom or religious freedom or religious liberty and 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 the opportunity to start conversations. That's the way I would describe it. Well, uh Drew Brees made a video, a PSA video in support of Bring Your Bible to School Day and he has been now publicly shamed. I mean that's the only way I can describe it. And so I think it's going to come down to the question of whether or not Christians are as free as everybody else to speak our minds and say what we think and believe in the public square, in the cultural conversations of the day. Uh, and let me just be clear, the Bible is not a a book of bigotry and discrimination. It is the revelation of the living God to the world about who he is. If you want to know God, uh, the Bible is the place that you need to go to discover what he has chosen to say about himself chosen to reveal about himself. And so uh, let me just encourage you today as a Christian to not only, you know, take your Bible to school, but, you know, take your Bible to work if you want to. Um, And certainly recognize that you, you as a Christian may be the only Bible that another person ever reads. So uh, that leads us into a conversation about the First Amendment and the Constitution of the United States. And so I'm going to have a conversation next with Jake Warner from the Alliance Defending Freedom. He is legal counsel in a case called Telescope Media Group versus Lucera. 
Uh, and there has been movement in this case that will be of interest to all of you. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. The Minnesota Human Rights Act forces uh, people like Carl and Angel Larson to use their work, which in this case is the production of films, use their filmmaking talents to promote ideas um, that are contrary to their sincerely held religious beliefs. The Alliance Defending Freedom then comes alongside people like Carl and Angel to help them navigate the very uh, complexities of the legal system in order that their rights as citizens and as Christians can be upheld. So Jake Warner from the Alliance Defending Freedom is here now to talk with us about the Telescope Media Group versus Lucero case. Jake, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for having me. So why don't you just brief people in on what this case is about so that then we can talk about the developments in it. Sure. Uh, Carl and Angel Larson on Telescope Media Group. That's a Minnesota-based uh, filmmaking company, and uh, they create all kinds of films, uh, mostly promoting their religious beliefs. And uh, a couple of years ago, back in late 2016, uh, Carl and Angel decided they wanted to start creating wedding films. In particular, they wanted to create wedding films that highlighted and, and showed the beauty of biblical marriage. Uh, But like you said, according to Minnesota officials, if the Larsons created films that celebrated biblical marriage, uh, the state would also force them to create other kinds of films, films that would contradict those beliefs and celebrate kinds of marriages that um, go against their religious faith. Uh, So left with not very good options uh, under the law, there's penalties even up to 90 days in jail. The Larsons wanted to find out their rights on the front end before they were facing that kind of penalty, so they filed a lawsuit against the state to determine their their rights under the First Amendment to see how the application of this public accommodation law fits in uh, the First Amendment. Okay, so let's talk about this pre-enforcement lawsuit, because I think that is something that is probably new for a lot of people. Um, the, the plaintiff in a case is listed first, and so am I right about that? I'm not a lawyer. Let me just go ahead and say I'm not a doctor. <laughs> I'm not a lawyer. I'm not. I, so uh, it, when it says Telescope Media Group versus Lucero, the Telescope Media Group is the plaintiff, and that's why their name comes first, which means they're the ones that filed the case. Is that right? That's right. Okay. And then a pre-enforcement lawsuit is what? A pre-enforcement lawsuit occurs when people like Carl and Angel Larson see a law or an application of a law, and they wonder, hmm, I wonder if that's really right under the Constitution. I wonder if our Constitution really allows the state to do this to me because it seems like it violates my rights. We saw pre-enforcement lawsuits back in the civil rights era, so these are part of our nation's history. Uh, Americans don't have to wait to be thrown in jail before they can find out what their rights are. Uh, 
And that's exactly the decision that Carl and Angel Larson made here. They wanted to find out their rights on the front end, so they filed a lawsuit against Minnesota to have a court set the boundary between this application of their public accommodation law and what the First Amendment requires. So I think this is a really interesting um this is interesting learning for a lot of us, Jake. So thank you for being patient as we uh, understand this. Um, this idea that I have a right to know what the law means in application to my life. And so when we talk about a lawsuit, um, sometimes what we're talking about is almost a question that just says, help me understand where we're at in our culture and how the law that has been passed is going to apply to me. And so we're really asking for the judge or a set of judges, a panel of judges, to help us understand, to help us interpret in advance how a law will be applied. Is that a fair way of describing a pre-enforcement lawsuit? That's right. And in cases like Carl and Angels, they were experiencing real harm before they filed their lawsuit. If you look at the case law in our country, it says that self-censorship or not saying something that you want to say is a kind of harm under the First Amendment. And because Carl and Angel Larson wanted to create wedding films consistent with their faith, uh, but they had to decide not to do that until they found out their rights, uh, what our courts say is that that kind of self-censorship itself is a harm that allows you to bring this kind of lawsuit on the front end. All right. So we're going to take a brief break. And then when we come back, you're going to help us understand why this is not just discrimination, why it's not just open discrimination against people for uh, for for the Larsons to not make these kinds of films. So we're going to draw a key distinction between the person and the message when we come back, I'm talking with Jake Warner from the Alliance Defending Freedom. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Jake Warner from the Alliance Defending Freedom, you can find them uh, on Twitter at Alliance Defends. You can also find them at ADF Legal, uh, which is .org, ADF uh, Legal. Am I right? It's .org. Off the That's top, exactly right. Off the top of my head, it's .org. Okay, so ADFLegal.org. Uh, um, Jake, draw the distinction for us. Help me understand why I am not uh, not being a bigot when I am choosing to not express something, when I am choosing to resist the government's efforts to make me say something that's contrary to my sincerely held religious beliefs? Why does that not make me a bigot? Sure. Well, all of our clients, and this includes Carl and Angel Larson, they serve everyone through their business. What they can't do is express every message through their films. Uh, So they make this distinction between the status of the person and the message that they speak through their films. So, for example, Carl and Angel Larson routinely create films for people in the LGBT community. They've filmed fashion shows and all kinds of things that involve LGBT people. Uh, What they can't do is create films that express messages that contradict their core beliefs. So they serve everyone. They just can't express every message 
through their films, and that's the exact distinction that the First Amendment uh, draws. And, and that shows um, that we're actually not challenging every aspect of this public accommodation or non-discrimination law. Uh, there's many applications of the law that are perp perfectly fine. But what the First Amendment says is that government cannot force people to express messages that violate their beliefs, especially when those people serve everyone generally through their business. Okay, Jake, so listeners are thinking to themselves that this was all resolved in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case that we've been following for a number of years um, out of Colorado. Uh, you can't force a person who bakes cakes to bake a cake in celebration of, uh, of, of a wedding or of, um, I suppose, any other religious expression um, that that person might understand to be religious. Uh, so why is the Masterpiece Cake ruling at the Supreme Court not immediately the answer to the question in this case? In the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, um, Colorado was really treating Jack worse than every other cake artist because of his faith. And when the Supreme Court realized that, they did not have to get to the free speech issue. Now, parts of their opinion certainly give us hints about what the Supreme Court thinks about the speech issue, but that was a free exercise decision. Essentially, the Supreme Court said, Colorado, you were discriminating against Jack because of his faith, and you can't do that under the First Amendment. Um, so the free speech issue was really left on the table in a formal sense, and that's what the Eighth Circuit decided the Larson's case on a couple of weeks ago. They had to extensively address the free speech issue, and they were the first federal appeals court to ever do so. Okay. Now, for those of us who don't spend all of our time operating in the world that you operate in, um, we know what the Supreme Court is. But really, when we start talking about these circuits and when we start talking about appeals, most of us, you know, like took civics so long ago that we don't actually know how all of this works and how it moves up a do it. What I can I describe it as a judicial ladder? Sure. That's a great way to describe it. So where where when you know, when Carl and um, when the Larsons decide, OK, we want to uh, we want to bring a case. Where do they where did they initially bring it and then where did it go and where does it have yet to go? Carl and Angel Larson essentially had two options on the front end of this lawsuit. They could have either filed a lawsuit in state court or they could have filed a lawsuit in federal court, and that's because we have two different kinds of systems here, a federal government and a state government. Uh, on the front end, Carl and Angel Larson filed a lawsuit in the federal district court, and that's just a trial court um, that's part of the federal jurisdiction. Um, after the, the court ruled in, in their case at that level, um, the Larsons appealed the case up to uh, the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, and that's kind of a first level of appellate review between the trial court and the U.S. Supreme Court. So there's three levels of review, the trial court, the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, and there's about 12 different federal circuits around the country. The Eighth Circuit's just one of them. And then um, now we're waiting to see if Minnesota will uh, appeal this decision up to the U.S. Supreme Court or perhaps ask the Eighth Circuit to hear the case, what's called en banc. That means all the judges of the Eighth Circuit um, could potentially hear this case because when it's appealed up initially, only three judges, a three-judge panel hears the case. 
And that's where we are right now. A three-judge panel has heard the case, and they have ruled in favor of the Larsons. And so now it's really the ball is in the court of the state of Minnesota to decide whether or not they want to, like, defend themselves further, that people can be forced to say things against their conscience because the state of Minnesota thinks one way about things. And people, I don't know, aren't allowed to think things that are other than that. Like, that's what it feels like to me. I know I'm giving my um, I'm giving my bias away. Uh, in the way I'm describing that. Um, So when you look at this case and you look at other uh, cases across the country that the Alliance Defending Freedom and others um, are assisting with, do you feel like we're sort of in a season where there's a uh, there's a conversation that's going on in the culture and we are in the process of really determining how free people are going to be in terms of religious expression in various places of work and uh, and in terms of our freedom of speech? I think that is the issue of our time. Um, we represent clients around the country with similar issues to Carl and Angel. Of course, you know about Jack Phillips in Colorado. We also have a florist in Washington named Paranel Stutzman. We're getting ready to ask the U.S. Supreme Court to hear her case this week um, as it goes back up from the Washington Supreme Court. We also have um, two wedding artists in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. Their case is before the Arizona Supreme Court, and we're expecting a decision any day now. Uh, They want to create wedding art consistent with their faith, promoting biblical marriage, but what Phoenix says is they can't do that unless they create wedding art celebrating different kinds of marriages, and that includes create, you know, creating wedding vows for other kinds of marriages, and it includes um, creating Bible verses in context that would promote messages about other kinds of marriages. We also represent uh, Blaine Adamson, who is uh, a Kentucky uh, T-shirt printer, and uh, his case was just heard at the uh, Kentucky Supreme Court, and there the state was trying to force him to uh, print uh, messages promoting a local gay pride festival that violated his conscience. So we have lawsuits all around the country, and and really – Courts are wrestling with the idea, how can state and local governments use their public accommodation laws? Can they use them to compel speech or not? And the First Amendment, we argue, says no. That's an improper use of the state's power. Wow. And I, I, you know, I'm thinking about the, the, the case related to the funeral home in um, my, my mind thinks that it's Michigan. And I'm thinking about a... Uh, a conversation that we've had recently about a shelter, a woman's shelter in Alaska. Like it, it does seem to me as if you, when you, when you articulate it as this is the question of our time, these are the questions that we are asking as a nation right now in terms of the First Amendment and its, its real application in real lives um, and in real businesses and real families across the country. So, Jake, uh, thank you for being with us today. Uh, we will follow the uh, Carl and Angel Larson case, um, and we will encourage you in it. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me on the show. You guys can check it all out at adflegal.org. We'll be right back. Okay, we have a listener who's texted in who I think has asked a really good question, and that is, um, you know, if Steve Jobs can make a phone, an iPhone, why can't the Larsons produce a video Uh, The answer to that question is because the state of Minnesota, through the Minnesota Human Rights Act, forces companies like Telescope Media Group 
to do um, to do something to produce something that is contrary to their sincerely held religious beliefs. So uh, the the Minnesota Human Rights Act is not seeking to force Steve Jobs to make something other than an iPhone, um, but it is forcing businesses like Telescope Media Group to do something, to make something that uh, that they don't want to make. And so in answer to the question, it's the state of Minnesota that has provoked the, the, the free speech question. Um, and so... It's uh, if you want to know why this is a free speech case, it's because the Human Rights Act of a particular state has made it such. And that's actually what we're trying to, you know, like, right, work out as a culture, uh, whether or not a state can compel such a thing. So that's what's going on there. Okay, uh, next up, I'm going to have a conversation with David Aikman. He and I have more headlines to cover than time to cover them. But I can promise you that we are at least going to have a conversation about the Taliban and the uh Canceled conversations, I guess, would be the way to describe that. Uh, The United States was in the process of negotiating with the Taliban uh, to bring an end to hostility in Afghanistan. And then the Taliban thought that in order to strengthen their negotiating position, they would blow up some people, including a U.S. service person. And so uh, obviously we're not talking with them anymore. So there you go. We're going to talk about that. Uh, We may get to the Brexit bedlam. We're also going to talk a little bit more about the death of Robert Mugabe in Zimbabwe. So that's all up next here on Mornings with Carmen. David Aikman will be in the house. Kids and adolescents are playing around with dangerous substances, even the junk they find in God-fearing homes. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Parents are facing a difficult task of raising kids in a culture that's bent on creative inventions. Look, Teens are hunting for any possible way to get high. They abuse prescription drugs and common household items. And some of these substances are even riskier to use than the better-known street drugs. The biggest danger, though, comes when parents refuse to believe that their child might be using in the first place. It's called denial. So, Mom, Dad, don't stick your head in the sand and pretend that your teen knows better than to experiment. Stay alert and remain the protective parent your child desperately needs. Looking for more parenting wisdom? Go online to ParentingTodaysTeens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. My name is Bond, James Bond. Well, good morning, David Aikman. Welcome back. Thank you so much. Great to be with you again. For those of you who are not familiar with his uh, extraordinary body of work, David Aikman has spent um, decades now covering news around the globe, and he brings his perspective to bear here every Monday morning. Uh, we talk about the international headlines, and uh, and we do so f- uh, through a Christian worldview. So, David, let's start with um, this announcement that, first of all, the president of the United States was going to meet with uh, representatives of the Taliban, and now that is not going to happen. Um, which part of that surprises you more? Um, I think the first part, that that uh, he was going to meet with the Taliban uh, at Camp David in, a, in an entirely secret meeting before any resolution of the issues between the U.S. and the Taliban had been resolved. So that was my first surprise. 
But the fact that he canceled the meeting at short notice is not particularly surprising because the Taliban owned up to having set off a suicide bomb in Kabul last week that killed one American. So it would have been intolerable to have President Trump presiding over a meeting with the Taliban close to the anniversary of the 18th anniversary of 9-11 when an American uh, soldier had been killed in Pakistan by the Taliban. So remind us, um, I mean, you know, Camp David is is not just a presidential retreat. It is uh, is a really almost secretive, secure facility. I, I, I find it stunning that that was going to be the location for such a meeting with, you know, frankly, terrorists. I agree with you, actually. Although Camp David has been used for very constructive meetings, for example, between Menachem Begin, the Prime Minister of Israel, and Anwar Sadat, the President of Egypt, when they came to a, a meeting in 1980 that secured peace between Israel and Egypt. Now, that was not a secret meeting. Obviously, it was behind closed doors, but people knew about it, and there were photographers shooting pictures of the arrived delegations. But this particular meeting would have been, as far as I can tell, completely undercover, unless it had come to a breakthrough agreement at the end, in which case it would have been announced and every every journalist in the universe would have been allowed in. But obviously that didn't happen. So we're back to square one. All right. So, David, you are um, you are old enough to remember some things about Robert Mugabe that others of us may have not been paying attention to at the time. So, you know, I will admit that, it, you know, in my years of professional service, uh, Mugabe has only been a bad guy. You may remember uh, when he was not a bad guy, per se. Uh, let's talk about Robert Mugabe, the former president of Zimbabwe. Um, and start wherever you want to unfold this story. Well, his story really begins before 1980. 1980 was the year when he came to power in uh, in um, Zimbabwe as a result of negotiations uh, organized by the British between the regime of Ian Smith, a recalcitrant white nationalist farmer, and um, and the various black opposition groups, including uh, Mugabe's own uh, Zanu, um, or Zapu, I'm sorry. So what happened is Mugabe came into office in 1980 with a lot of the accolades of Africans around him saying he's done a wonderful job overthrowing a white colonialist regime. Now we're going to march forward into the future. The trouble with Mugabe was that he had already declared himself a Marxist-Leninist. And these communist ideals, if you can call that maybe communist ideology within him, uh, resulted in the strangulation of an economy that had previously, previously been the breadbasket of Africa. 
the white farmers who largely managed the agricultural production in Rhodesia, southern Rhodesia, before it was um, became Zimbabwe. They had produced sterling production records and provided food for their whole population. But under Mugabe's tenure, the the white farmers were pushed out or they were threatened and they fled Rhodesia. The entire economy basically ground a halt, added to which there were international sanctions because of the criminal activities that the regime was inflicting upon the ordinary people. So I'll give you a, a, a brief um, statistic. When Mugabe took office in 1980, the lifespan of the average inhabitant of Zimbabwe was 60. When he died in uh, sort of last week, it was down to 34. I mean, just stupendous collapse of all the social services needed to run a modern country. Mm. That's a that is actually a stunning you know picture in one statistic. In 1980, the lifespan in Zimbabwe was 60. Today, it is 34. Uh, David, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, let's talk about um, Brexit bedlam and what is happening uh, there in Great Britain. We'll also keep an eye on Hong Kong. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Returning to my conversation with Dr. David Aikman from Godspeed Magazine. David, let's pick up our conversation about what is happening or not happening with efforts toward Brexit. So, you know, you and I have not talked for a week and nothing interesting has happened, right? Well, uh, that's not exactly the case. (laughs) Uh, If you're being sarcastic, we could all agree on that. But essentially... The Prime Minister of Great Britain, or the United Kingdom, if you prefer to call it that, has been boxed into a corner where Parliament will not allow him to get out of the European Union when he wanted on October 31st without a deal, and in fact imposed upon him the restriction that he could not Uh, take Britain out of the EU without getting a deal. And so Johnson then posed a challenge to his Labour opposite numbers on the front bench saying, well, let's have a general election. But the Labour Party is frightened that it would probably lose the general election. So you now have a situation where... um, A large number of people in the UK feel that their vote for Brexit in the referendum of 2016 is not being respected, that the Prime Minister is not being allowed to to bring, to implement Brexit, and in fact his hands are being tied behind his back by a parliament that won't even agree to an election. So it's a very strange short-circuiting of the democratic process, where I think you have 
a majority of parliamentarians who want to remain in the EU basically opposed to the 52% of the country that voted to leave the EU in 2016. I don't know how we resolve that. And if you're a praying person, pray for Boris Johnson, for the Holy Spirit to give him wisdom, because it's a real mess at present. So when you when you look at it and you say to yourself, okay, so we are now in, uh, we we just, it's a mess. Um, what what is a legitimate next step? I mean, when we we can certainly all pray for the Holy Spirit to bring wisdom. I guess I'm also wondering yeah. if there's an idea that's out there that's a legitimate step out of the corner. Because I think that once you have painted yourself into a corner, right? I mean, the challenge is that you actually then right. have to what either cut a door in the wall or you have to say, I've you know I've made a mistake here. I have. I have created an unresolved, uh, unresolvable situation for myself and others. Well, I don't think it's, it's Boris's, Boris Johnson's mistake primarily. He was faithful to the desires of the Leave voters who voted to get out no matter what. He was trying to implement that. And the Remain members of Parliament uh, put all kind of obstacles in his way to get out. And then he said, well, why don't you allow the British people to decide in a general election? And they closed off that avenue for him. There is a thin possibility that he could actually introduce a vote of no confidence in the House of Commons against himself. And if he lost the vote, which would be his intention, then the opposition would be forced to form a government or to call for new elections pen- pending their failure to form a government. That's a pretty desperate measure. I don't think he'll go that route, but uh, he's pretty clever um, in both the good and the bad sense. And I think he'll come up with something that will, will actually work. Okay, let's take a quick pivot to um, to Hong Kong. Some developments there over the weekend. Um, observations that you want to make uh, in really, I mean, they're singing the Star Spangled Banner. I find that kind of provocative. <laughs> well, the Chinese government, or the, I should say, the Chinese Communist Party, finds it provocative. <laughs> I don't think the Hong Kong people do. Okay, so. Give us some perspective on that, because, I mean, you know, David, you know this about us as Americans. We're just kind of obsessed with ourselves and uh, the fact that somebody was doing something at the uh, at the U.S. consulate we think is significant. Um, When you I mean, again, you and I have talked about this at length. We have talked about the the reality that there is it's difficult to see a positive way forward where the protesters get what they ultimately want, which is actually real democracy, under a a communist government, which is technically the authority in in play here. Um, but we did see the, you know, the actual rescinding of the particularly offensive um, uh, extradition, what are we calling it, rule? Yeah, yeah. the bill to extradite was withdrawn. So that's not the immediate issue. The immediate issue for the protesters is 
why doesn't the one country through system system that allows political democracy to operate freely in Hong Kong for a period of 50 years, why is that being banned by the government in Beijing? Second, why doesn't the Hong Kong government allow an independent investigation of police brutality, which resulted in uh, one protester losing her eye and other protesters suffering multiple injuries? And I think underlying it is a sense that the regime that looms over Hong Kong, the political machine of the People's Republic of China, is an unbearably impressive shadow, and they simply don't want to be under it. I don't think there's any way they can get out, but it's their maybe futile, but at least pugnacious attempt to defy it. David, you're, you are old enough to make the observation um, that wars have consequences. And, and when wars are fought um, and then treaties are signed, people generations down the road then live under and with the decisions that are, you know, that are made by individuals and nations at a particular point in history. And so I think that what we're seeing play out in Hong Kong um, is exactly that. And, you know, we're talking about 100 years ago, 200 years ago, things happening that we are now um, seeing the and experiencing the very real effects of. It, it occurs to me that that is the same conversation that uh, we could have about, let's say, Israel and and the Palestinians. It's the same conversation that we could be having about uh, Rhodesia, Zimbabwe, and the death of Robert Mugabe. Wars um, have consequences, and and treaties have application generations hence. Yes, but wars are also started by the fallibility of human nature, that people become greedy for territory or for power that's available in your neighbor, and they think they can take it by force, which, of course, was the whole strategy of Hitler and Mussolini and others, not to mention the Soviet Union. So how far back you can take this unraveling, I don't know. If you look at it seriously, the kind of international squabbling that leads to wars goes way back to ancient Egyptian times and ancient Chinese times. Now, of course, that wasn't international. But the problem of the instability of international relations has been with us since the beginning of time. And here's the thing. In 1648, the Thirty Years' War came to an end in Europe when the states of Europe, the nations of Europe, agreed to what is called the Westphalian system, that nation-states will not make war on nation-states for reasons of ideology. And that has held, held effectively true up in Europe up until the present time, barring dictatorships of Hitler and so on. So there is a system out there to prevent chaos, and we just have to try to keep it implemented. All right, see, this is why I like to have you on, because... Uh... Not all of us even recognize that uh, we, we could be talking about an, an agreement from 
1648 uh, and the end of the Thirty Years' War and the Westphalian system, and why uh, we as Western people um, imagine that nation states don't make war with one another, because that's just not something that's held necessarily around the world uh, as a common understanding. David Aikman, thank you as always so much for joining with us. We appreciate you, sir. Thank you very much, Karen. Nice to be on. We'll be right back. Oh, Paul says I will just going to hang out because we are almost out of time today. So let me just remind you um, of some of the conversations that we've had and where you can find them. You can always find the podcast later today at MyFaithRadio.com. You can follow me on social media. I tweet a bunch of stuff out as well, like the articles that we discuss. So you can follow me at Carmen LaBerge. I'm on Facebook at Reconnect with Carmen. And I also have a ministry website called Reconnect with Carmen. Thank you, as always, to Mr. Paul Perot for making all the magic of radio happen today in studio. And a big greeting from rainy Minneapolis, St. Paul. Everybody have a great day. God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.